Okay, folks, would you join me in James chapter 5, please? By now, your Bible's open to that place. We're on the 27th week of addressing this chapter. We've made it all the way to verse number 16. There's only 20 verses. You would think that it shouldn't take quite that long. But here's the thing. I'm going to spend about three weeks just in verse 16. And that's uh, the first half of verse 16. And there's much for us to to see here. The, the messages that I have lined up to share in verse number 16 will speak of... I'm just going to give you titles, and, and they're not all... They're not inspired, okay? They're just titles. The disease of sin, the cure for the disease of sin, and then the application to this text, James 5, verse 16. So, those three things, as you can see in verse number 16, there are things here that um, we stop when we say, Wow, really? Therefore... Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Does that bring a lot of question marks to your mind? We've been working through this passage and I've been working on it as carefully as I possibly could. I I need to present to you carefully as well because it doesn't do any of us good if we're careless or sloppy with it. So... I have some observations here I want to share with you from this passage and and work into parts and pieces of it. And then in a couple of weeks, I'll be able to put it all together and you'll say, oh, because that's what I always like, that oh moment when we say, that makes sense. Um, So we're going to aim for that. But first, let's talk to the author of the book in prayer. Heavenly Father, there are so many things that uh, we read in your word that goes far beyond our ability to comprehend, because you are God and you are great. And you have communicated us to us in a perfect way. And we are not perfect. And our minds are limited and our distractions are great. And, and sometimes, Lord, we get a hold of a passage and it's, it's not easy to unravel and understand. And uh, so, as with any passage of your word, we depend upon you. Because you are not only the author, but the Holy Spirit is our teacher. And he does even more than just teach it. He applies it to our life and he changes us from the inside out. And as we approach a passage that has some interesting question marks in our minds, some depth to it that uh, leaves us wondering, we come to you first. Say, Lord, help us. Help us to understand it the right way. According to your will and your word, that we may appropriately apply a passage like this and live it out by faith and to your honor and glory. Help us with it today. We pray especially as we give our attention to you and your word. Teach us carefully today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to make some observations first off in verse number 16. You're there looking right at it with me, I hope. But there are some things here that when I pulled it up in my Greek text, I said, wow, really, it was. Um, Because there were things about this text and the nature of the words and the tenses that are used in there that kind of pop up on the page to me when I read it. And I said, 
Boy, I wish somehow our English could express it the same way. We have limitations, but we're going to learn some wonderful things about verse 16. First of all, there is an intense, emphatic nature to the commands and even to the conjunction. The conjunction is the word therefore that it starts with. It's, it's rather interesting to see that that word is not the average, therefore. It's got some pop to it. And wait till you see it. It's almost like James broke his pen when he wrote it. Because of the way that he is expressing things. And the two words that we have here, confess and pray, then you say, okay, I get those two words. But both of those are intensified in the Greek text too. And I said, whoa! He's really getting to the point. He's hitting the crescendo for you music lovers. He's up there with high notes right now when he gets to verse number 16. And it is a powerful little verse to study. I said, oh, wow, this is going to be fun. All right. Now, you've got to hold that thought for a couple of weeks because I'm not going to address that today. But that's my first observation. Notice another stress in verse number 16. Twice he uses the phrase, one another. Ooh, sounds like it's going to get personal too, doesn't it? One another, one another. He does it once with confess, and he does it once with pray. And he brings up the issue of one another. We're going to notice that as we go through it here too. Now, here's one that you might not notice, but you will as I go throughout the message today. There's an interesting mix of a word that some of you have the word fault, and some of you have the word sin. And I bet if I, if I had people raise their hand, it would be about half each. We have the word sins. We have the word faults. And that's an interesting mix of two different Greek words. Uh, hamartia is the word for sin, and peritoma is the word for faults. Now, we're going to talk about that one today. All right, so hold that thought. I just observed it, and I said, well, this is going to be interesting. There's also... The result of healing that is mentioned. You see it there in the middle of the verse. That you may be healed. And that is our curiosity in a great way. The question would be, is that physical healing? Or is that figurative healing? Or is that spiritual healing? What kind of healing? We're going to work on that. That's an observation. I said, boy, that raises a question or two. And then the verse ends with that great statement of prayer and faith that we've been studying now for all these weeks. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes or avails much. And that is in the midst of all these things that we are looking at in this paragraph, this little, little verse. Isn't that amazing? One verse packs all that into it. We're going to take it apart and try to work through it. And I'm going to go to that first observation for today, which is that mixture the mixture of the word sin or faults, or it might be trespasses. If you're carrying a King James Version, you would see the word fault there, wouldn't you? And you could say, okay, I've seen that word before. Most of the time we would say, well, it's either not my fault, <laughs> that's a very common phrase we like to use, or we use faults as, well, I'm, I'm going to say it this way, but you can handle this, I'm sure. Almost the excuse. Almost the excuse. You know, 
I couldn't help it. It was it's just a fault. You know what I mean? All right. But the King James does use that word. And it's a legitimate translation of the word teratoma. All right? Now, that has been the case in English translations all the way from William Tyndale in the 1500s. For 300 solid years, that is the only translation, translation of that word that they saw in their text. False, 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 false. It was the New King James Version that changed it to trespasses, which is the exact same word, by the way. A fault and a trespass, they both come from the same word. Now, if you're reading a translation that has been uh, produced in the last hundred years, NIVs, New American Standard, ESVs, many of these others, they use the word sins. That's interesting. What changed all that? Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. If you're reading the World English Bible, you might carry it. Some people call it the web. That doesn't mean it's on the Internet. Well, it is on the Internet, but the World English Bible is, uh, they use the word offenses. Which I think is kind of curious, because in our day and age, everything offends people. Except sin. But you're safe if you've carried your Amplified Version today. Because the Amplified Version didn't want to leave anybody out. And so their translation goes like this. Your faults, your slips, your false steps, your offenses, and your sins. Woo! That covers everything. But is there really a difference when we use such words? And I love words. I love studying words. I've always been that kind of guy who wants to study more and more in words. And so when I saw that and I saw two different words, I said, why? They seem different to me anyway. So I investigated a bit and found it was two different sets of manuscripts. One of them using one word and one of them using the other word. And it depends on which one you based your translation on is the way you went. So most of the older, older translations use the word teratoma. And most of the newer translations pulled it from a Greek text that said hamartia. And that's why we have the differences. And I'm going to define them in a few minutes, all right? So notice that's interesting that I've observed it and I want you to see it too. Because... When it comes to the issue of the word sin, people step back and say, oh, what's this? Okay, I'm going to confess to you. The sermon is about sin today. All right? I didn't advertise that before you came. Because most people really don't like the word. They don't like the word. Um, In our day and age, let's look at it from the world's perspective for a minute. I could easily prove it if I need to. Sin is mocked. Sin is enjoyed. Sin is treated lightly. Sin is explained away. We see it a lot on the TV screen. We're hearing it less and less from the pulpit. Because people don't want to go to a church that talks about sin. It's not a popular topic. And the reason is because it's very revealing about man. It's very convicting to man. It's too restrictive, they say, because man desires to do his own thing. And too judgmental for most of society. 
But you know what? God is not afraid to use the word. I thought, well, out of curiosity, I'm going to start figuring out how much God uses this word. Now, I did not start in Genesis and start turning pages and count it that way. I love technology. Just type in the word and say, how many times does it pop up? My Bible software helps me with that. So I typed in the word sin, sins, sinning, or sinned, past tense, almost 700 times, 698 times, just that use of the word. This is only in the New American Standard Version, in the English uh, uh, translation. Iniquity and iniquities, 242 times. Transgression, transgressions, transgressed, 123 times. Trespass, or any of the forms of it, trespasses and trespassing, six times. Faults, eight, or fault. By the way, add it up, you're over a thousand. Over a thousand times, just scanning through there to say, does God ever mention sin? Quite often. That's pretty heavy, actually. It's well documented in Scripture what God thinks of sin, by the way. But the world doesn't even want to hear it addressed one time. And God addresses it over a thousand times at least. Matter of fact, the world would say, okay, you could have your John 3.16. You could have that at your ball games. You can do what you want with John 3.16. We're listening to that one. But have you ever looked at the context of John 3.16? Go over there with me. I want you to see it. Start in John 3, verse number 16. And I'm going to go all the way down to verse 20. And I'll show you what else is said in this passage. John 3, start at verse 16. You know it. For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You all probably memorized that at some time, didn't you? We know it. We love it. Matter of fact, it's great. It's the gospel message. So plain and so simple. It reveals God's attitude. He loves the world. He loves you. Isn't that great? Okay, some of you think so. God's action is revealed. He gave His Son. God's, or man's need is revealed. He needs to believe in him. Yes, that is a need for mankind. Man's problem is he will perish if he doesn't. God has a promise, though. For everyone who believes, they have everlasting life. It's a great passage. That's a, you could preach that one, can't you? Five points right there. Boom speaks of the gospel message. But it doesn't end there. The text goes on in verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Now it starts to explain the gospel in this way. Jesus didn't come into the world to judge it because He didn't need to. Glance down to verse number 18 for a minute and see what it says there. That the person who does not believe is judged already. Already. That is a problem, isn't it? That is why he needs saved. To be saved means you need saved from something. 
You don't just save somebody who doesn't need help, do you? I tell this story. I love telling this story. My dad, many years ago going to work, he drove this giant Jeep dump truck thing. I don't know, 1959 something or other. It had a flatbed nose to it. I don't know if you've ever seen them before. Huge, huge Jeep dump truck, I guess. He drove it to work, and he had a snow plow on the front of it, because in Indiana, you never knew. Um, and he plowed a lot of snow. But he said he came up on an intersection one day. There was a lady in front of him in a car, and she was motioning him for to go around her. The car wasn't working for some reason or whatever. He took this to mean, push me. So he did. She wasn't very happy about that on the other side of the intersection. But he figured that's what that was. Some people don't want to be saved. They don't need to be saved. And so you say, well, that's strange. But the reality is, to be saved means you have a need. All right? And verse number 17 goes into a simple picture here. The world is in need because it is already judged. Think of that. Sometimes when we think of our unbeliever friends or unbeliever relatives or something, we say, oh, well, you know, they're going to get to it someday. We're going to talk to them about it someday. Have you ever stopped to realize they're judged already? Boy, if that doesn't put some fire underneath us to share the gospel, I don't know what will. They're judged already because they have not believed. They're already under his wrath. The end of the chapter, chapter 3, verse 36 or so, it says that too. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That's powerful stuff. So Jesus didn't have to judge the world. It was already judged. Here's man's condition. Verse number, well, go to verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And here's his condition under that judgment. This is the judgment, verse 19 says, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. This is man's attitude towards sin and darkness. They love it. That's an incredible phrase. They love it. That's a very rare occasion you find in the Bible where the word agape, it's agapeo in the Greek verb form, is used in a negative way. All the time we generally see it, it's speaking about God's great love for us. And we think, what a wonderful word, what a wonderful word. And then John pulls it out and puts it in this passage and says, that's man's love for sin. It is sacrificial. It is the greatest love they know. Isn't that powerful? That's the way we define it in such a great way. This is the greatness of the love for darkness. It couldn't be said more intensely. Their attitude is seen in their action as well, because their deeds were evil, it says. Their deeds were evil. And when you address sin to those who love it, And those who practice it, you get this result. Verse number 20. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. 
Now you got the picture. Of course, we're protected from such things, aren't we? We're inside of a church building right now. So we're safe. We're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We claim John 3.16. We think that John 3.19 and 20 is for the other guy who does the sinning. Now I'm being a little bit sarcastic here, but on purpose. We would like to say that the problem with loving sin and doing sin and resisting the address of sin is about the other guy. Who is James writing to in James chapter 5? Believers. Almost every single reference in the epistles are to believers. And they are not shy in addressing the issue of sin in regard to the believer. In James chapter 5, we have weakness, we have sickness, we have sin, we have disease. I'm going to use that word for now. We have faults, we have trespasses, we have transgressions, we have offenses. The word sin is there. And he's talking to believers. So I've observed with you so far the mixture of the two words. And I've observed to you as well that the world doesn't want to hear it. And the third observation I get from this is that the problem of sin has not gone away. And unfortunately, that's an observation from the church side. The problem of sin has not gone away. Why does James say in James chapter 5, look back at that passage, why does he say confess your sins to one another? Isn't that a nasty little pronoun? Your sins. And then he goes on to say, and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Boy, he's pointing the finger right at him. You. You and your little pronouns that are very eye-touching in this passage. Wouldn't you say? We want to, we, what we really want is for the world to see sin like the Bible states it. Wouldn't you like that? What we need is for the church to see sin, like the Bible addresses it. Because it is so damaging to the body of Christ. It is so damaging to the walk of faith. We, don't, we, we treat it lightly. We don't look at it seriously enough. We see three concepts here in, in this pastor's sermon that he wants to talk about. He's talking about the disease of sin and the cure of the disease of sin. And how does that apply from verse number 16? And we say, wow, that's a lot to deal with in one little passage on sin. But that's all over Scripture. <laughs> there are three other passages that you're going to see this week and next week and maybe the following week too. But I want to show them to you for a minute. Go to Matthew chapter 13. All of these passages have an interesting link to what we're studying but I want you to start with Matthew 13 and go to verse 13. First of all, we've got a problem called the dullness of the heart. That's a very serious condition, by the way. The dullness of the heart. He says in Matthew 13, 13, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while... Seeing, they do not see. 
And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people have become dull. Their eyes, they, well, with their ears, they scarcely hear. They have closed their eyes. Notice, they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. See that word? That kind of caught my attention. Blessed are your eyes because I see, and your ears because I hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. We are very, very blessed in our day and age to have God's Word, to have it so available to us. We have no excuse to not know His Word and to not know His will, except for the fact that our hearts can't get dull. And we can close our eyes and we can stop listening. I don't want to be there, do you? I don't want to be there. He says, there's a blessed man who sees and he hears. And I want to be that kind of man. Well, the problem is, not only is a dull heart a problem, but the defilement that comes from it is contagious. Even among believers. Second passage, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter number 12. And now far from that, James. So just back up a few pages, probably. Hebrews 12, start in verse 11, run through verse 15. Hebrews 12:11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak, the knees that are feeble, make a straight path for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may be put out of, uh, may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. See that word? It's coming up. We're going to study it. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification with which no one will see the Lord, without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, for by it many be defiled. It's a contagious thing. We say, well, it's only my problem. It's only my heart. Won't bother anybody. It's okay. No, it's not not okay. That little root. Have you noticed the weeds lately? They are taking over this country. It's amazing. Just as you clean them all out next day, they're there again. The root of bitterness. Ah, uh, nothing. <laughs> it defiles many. That's what it says. So we say, well, this is personal, Pastor. It's my sin. Yeah. But this is the body of Christ. And many can be defiled by your sin. Alarming, isn't it? Well, there it is. We're going to look at that again. But there is only one cure. The cure is in the death of Christ. It's our only solution. 
One more passage I'll bring up to you, and these three we're going to study, I told you again. 1 Peter 2, verse number 21. 1 Peter 2, 21, and just guide right through the end of the chapter here, up to verse 25. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin. We're supposed to walk in those steps. Nor was any deceit found in his mouth. We're supposed to walk in those steps. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. We're supposed to walk in those steps. While suffering, he uttered no threats. We're supposed to walk in those steps. But he entrusted himself, kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Yes, you're supposed to do that too. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we, you see the word? We, that's you and me, we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were what? Healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Wow, those are heavy passages, aren't they? I submit to you something simple today. That if we do not address sin, but let it continue to damage the body of Christ, the church, we're missing out entirely on not only what Scripture is calling us to do as believers. We might die to sin and live to righteousness. But, folks, we will never understand James chapter 5 without this understanding of sin. Because we can read through James 5 and just casually scan through it and say, Oh yeah, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another that you may be healed. Let's move on. But there's a big word in that verse, and it's the word sin. And we're not to take that lightly. We cannot take that lightly. Even as a believer, we try to define it. Definition is not always that easy. We tried that with the Vacation Bible School students a few weeks ago. I mean, a lot of our topics we were teaching had to do with sin. How do you teach that to a four-year-old? Any mom or dad would like that. Yeah, teach them what sin means. <laughs> that would help a lot. It was simply said this way. Sin is anything you do that God said not to do. And sin is anything you don't do that God said to do. Technically... Sin is disobeying God, right? It's disobeying God. Missing his expectation of our full obedience to him. We know how sin entered into this world in Genesis chapter 3. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 makes it very, very clear. It says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Romans 5.12 That matches perfectly Romans 3.23, doesn't it? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then Romans 3.23 adds to it the consequence. For the wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise the Lord for that addition. In our world... There is a push 
to deny that there is a right and there is a wrong. There are no absolutes, they say. Some of us older folks look at that and scratch our heads. Wonder at times, why are they pushing so hard to remove boundaries? I want to read to you something. Now this is what's going to astonish you, first of all. It was written over a hundred years ago. All right? Over a hundred years ago. Listen to what it said. Because sin is a dominant fact of human experience as well as a major theme in the Bible, it has been the subject of endless discussion. Those who reject scriptural revelation have frequently provided inadequate concepts of sin. All right. I'm going to footnote here my own thought. There's the start of the problem. Deny the truth of Scripture. All right, I go on. A familiar feature of the non-biblical approach is to regard sin as to some extent an illusion. That is, sin is just a misconception based upon a false theory that there is right and wrong in the world. A hundred years ago. We're there, folks. This theory, of course, fails to face the facts of life and the evils of sin and denies the existence of a moral God and moral principles. You see, men do love darkness rather than light. Men won't come to the light because it exposes their deeds. That was written in a book called Major Bible Themes. Lewis Berry Schaefer, John Wolverd worked on that a little bit too. That was well over 100 years ago. And as they wrote that, they said it was a struggle back then. It's getting more pervasive in our generation now. It's growing. What does sin look like? Genesis 6-5 is probably the best expression of the nature of sin in any place I've read in Scripture. Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's powerful. When I break that down, how does that sin affect a man? He does sin. That's visible to God. God saw it. He does much sin. That's what it says. It was great on the earth. His will is sinful. His will. Because it says every intent. His mind is sinful. Every intent of his thoughts. His heart is sinful. Every intent of his heart. He dedicates himself to it. Was only evil. Continually. His actions are characterized by sin. His continuation of sin is ceaseless. It's continuous. Those are powerful words I just read to you. That means his mind, his heart, his will, his actions, his, his desires, his motivation, his end goal that he's aiming for. You name it. It's ceaseless. And he dedicates himself to it. I read it literally from the Hebrew translation, translated to English. 
Jehovah saw that the men of the earth were abundantly morally depraved and the whole impulse of the inventions of his heart were only morally depraved the whole day. Wow. Now, remember I brought up the fact that there are two different words in your Greek text that come out here in the English. Let me talk to you about that for a second. In the old Greek text, they had one word for sin and another set of different words that are used for faults. Obviously, King James used the word faults. New American Standard uses the word sins. I'm not going to pick one or the other over the other to tell the truth. I'm going to tell you both. One means to make a bad step. That's the word fault. Paratoma is the way you spell it. In case you're wondering, there's several P's in there. P-A-R-A-P-T-O-M-A. It's a Greek word for alongside a dead body. Isn't that pleasant? Let me tell you how it worked. The concept was the picture of taking a bad step. You're walking right up here along the edge. All right? You're just walking right along the edge. All it takes is one bad step and you're in trouble. You fall off the cliff. You fall down to the body, bottom of it and you're crushed. You die. Unfortunately, a lot of other people did too, and nobody cleaned it up. There's a pile of dead bodies down there. That's the way they pictured it. You have stepped off with a bad step, and you ended up along the other dead bodies. Ugly picture, isn't it? Now, next time you say fault, think of it. That's the that's the Greek definition of, for that word. It's like yuck. Now, okay, it wasn't intentional. He didn't mean to fall. But it was fatal nonetheless. Not more than ten days ago, there was an article in the news. It came from Chicago. Maybe you saw it. The Willis Tower. Most people say, what's that? It's the Sears Tower. The Willis Company bought it and changed its name. But nobody wants to accept that yet. So, the Sears Tower. The Sears Tower has this great floor, 103 stories up. That you could go up there and you could look out over the city of Chicago. I've been up there several times. It's a great view. I mean, you're standing there saying, hey, that's Wisconsin. That's Michigan. That's Indiana. You could see these places. It's really quite a, a fascinating thing to stand up there. Well, somebody got this idea that what they needed to do was build a glass ledge on that floor where you can walk out on there and stand over the city. 103 stories up. Ten days ago, a lady and two children stepped out on it and it cracked. Of course, what would you do? It cracked under their feet, shattered into lots of different pieces. Now, the engineer said, well, they were supposed to do that. Right? I said, uh-uh. Now, they got them off. They were safe. Everything was okay. But, man, that would scare me to death. I'm not likely to step up on that ledge. Matter of fact, even when that ledge wasn't there, I stood back 10 feet from the windows. Because that is a creepy feeling when you're looking out and you've got a problem with heights anyway. Why do people like to stand on the edge of things? That nature of sin is standing on an edge where you're going to fall with one wrong step. Why do people always walk right up to the edge? That's one word. 
The other word is hamartia. It's missing the mark. It's like I pictured a few weeks ago about aiming for a target. You're aiming for the target. You know, it only takes one sin to make a sinner. Just one. Missing the mark shows how short we come of the perfection of God's glory. Many times when the word sin is in the page, there's a nature of intentional. Our actions, our words, our attitude, that which we shouldn't do, the things we don't do that we should do, there's an element of intentional with that. And I take both of those words and stir them up together and make that mix. Because the sum is, there is a nature of man that is sinful. And there are things that are done intentionally because of it. And there are things that are done accidentally because of it. But the reality is man is sinful. Man is sinful. Some people do not like the word depravity. You heard it a little bit when I was reading that from the Hebrew text. You say, really? Is that in there? It's there. Depravity. English translation, English definition, you ready? Not theological, just English. Moral corruption, wickedness. The wicked or morally, a wicked or morally corrupt act. The innate corruption of human nature due to original sin. That's in the dictionary. That's a cool. Synonyms, you ready? Corruption, corruptness, vice, pervasion, Pervertedness, deviance, degeneracy, degradation, immorality, shamelessness, debauchery, dissipation, dissoluteness, turpitude, uh, licentiousness, lewdness, lasciviousness, salaciousness, lechery, obscenity, indecency, libertinism, sordidness, wickedness, sinfulness, vileness, Baseness, baseness, iniquity, nefariousness, criminality, viciousness, brutality, brutish. That's English synonyms for such a word. It's also the headlines of many newspapers. I really do not mind using the phrase total in front of that word, depravity. People want to argue about that all they can. But you cannot prove the contrary. It speaks of the effects of sin on mankind. Sin has defiled our actions. It has defiled our minds. It has defiled our hearts. It has defiled our emotions, our words, and especially our souls. And we treat it like it is not that important. Billy Sunday the evangelist said, one reason why sin flourishes is that it's treated like a cream puff and not like a rattlesnake. He said, wow. Wow. Our understanding of sin is vital to understanding what Christ has done about it. It's, I call it a disease today. But I don't know if there's better words. There's probably is. We try to figure out the best way to say something. And that could fall far short, but I do notice this. In our day, we go with vengeance after diseases to find a cure. But the world turns the other way when you call it sin. 
when we want to talk about the cure, it's D.L. Moody who once said, stating, uh, looking at the wounded sin will never save anybody. What you must do is look at the remedy. He also said, the voice of sin may be loud, but the voice of forgiveness is louder. We have good news, folks. And it's 12 o'clock and my time's up and I hate to leave you right there. But that's where we are anyway. Apart from Christ, we're doomed. You see it? When we say, oh, but this person's healed because they confess their sin. We're all in the same boat. If it wasn't for Christ. So like I said before, this isn't a place where we point the finger and say, boy, that guy's pretty rotten. Look inside and see what Christ has done because that's who we were too. This is a very important passage for us. We have to define words. And I've been working with the definition for you today. I want you to see that word sin pop up on the page and say, ooh, and want to get away from it. I've always wanted to be the first one to come up with a sound effect Bible. A button you push that says, ooh, when you see a word like that. Because I think we should react to it from God's perspective and not from ours and not from our world. They're going to always sugarcoat it. They're always going to applaud it. They're always going to downgrade it. They're always going to ignore it. And we shouldn't do that in the church. We shouldn't. Because it's causing damage. And we don't want that, do we? No, we don't. Heavenly Father, there are a lot of things here to be said, things to do. But you know each and every one of us, and you know our hearts, and you know our needs. And if there's somebody today wrestling with something, your word has made it very clear what you think of it, or what you think of sin. If that's a big issue in their heart, and their, the tendency is to go that way, Lord, you work in the heart. You know what to do. May your word have its effect. May the Holy Spirit do his great job of convicting. May they come to realize their need. Their need just to be walking with Christ. We say that for our believers in our church. We have a whole world that desperately needs to hear the gospel too. Our job is never done. But we thank you, Lord, for what the job you've done for us in saving our souls. What a remarkable thing that you, seeing us as sinners, would love us, that you would die for us. That's amazing. I'm so thankful for it. We started this service today speaking of how great you are. And you are great. Without you, we'd be hopeless. And we're so glad you love us like you do. Your name is to be praised here today. Because you have made the difference. Next week, we're going to dig into more of that, Lord. And we're looking forward to that. But for today, we stop and say thank you for saving us from our sin. We give you the praise for that. In Jesus' name. Amen.